Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. David John Pleat, born the 15th of January 1945 in Nottingham, England. Um, what was life like growing up in Nottingham, just post the war? You're a war baby, David. Yeah, uh, typical football story, really. Council house estate. Uh, uh, not easy times. Both parents had to work very hard. Well, to... What did your dad do? My father was a tailor. He came out of uh, London uh, during the war. Um, and um, there were difficult times. Your uh, mum? Two daughters. My mother worked as a secretary in, a, in an office. And um, they made sure there was food on the table. Let's put it like that. But uh, we uh, had good standards. We were educated. And... Um, I followed my education, took O levels, but my passion was football. Ever since the you day went to the grammar school, well, the, uh, 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 that's slightly uh, unusual for the footballers of, uh, I've, I've spoken of your generation. You went to the grammar school. I did go to grammar school. We Which played rugby, but uh, had a very uh, sympathetic master who knew I was a good player. I played for Nottingham under elevens, and although I went to grammar school, they uh, included me in the under thirteens, under fourteens. Nottingham schoolboys what, played what for the county. What position did you play, David? Outside right, maybe centre forward. Scored goals, mm-hmm. but I was quite speedy then actually Danny well listen I know you were a good schoolboy footballer because um, and was it all football for you was it that were you one of these kids who was obsessed with football from right from the start you know it's like your your first impressions I kind of smelt the liniment the first time I went to football my father took me to see the great John Charles Leeds United at Nottingham Forest and I was smitten I wanted to be a footballer it was strange I was about nine years old and um, that's really how it developed, just like my father was an amateur uh, dramatics, uh, quite a good uh, actor. Uh-huh. And my sister went into the, uh, the theatre, went to university, but she wrote Coronation Street and many other theatricals, uh, book sides and various uh, programmes on television for many years. She was a scriptwriter. But um, it all, it all stems from sometimes your first experience. Of course. And you, you obviously went on to be a very good young footballer because I've got here in front of me a note of an amazing game when England schoolboys, listen to this everybody, England schoolboys played Scotland schoolboys at Wembley. The crowd was 95,000. Um, the people included, England's team included yourself, Barry Fry, Ron Harris, the, the great chopper, George Graham and Bobby Moncur played for yeah. Scotland. England won 5-3 um, and you were the man of the match and was described as the new Tom Finney. Yeah, very nice. It didn't go to my head I can assure you but um, yeah, it was nice I gave Bobby Moncur a hard game he was at left back made friends very good friends with two Scottish players Alex Willoughby and Jim Forrest both went to Rangers and of course George Graham's become a lifelong friend uh, Barry Fry of course great wheeler dealer good good uh, wonderful survivor but uh, yeah 95,000 at Wembley what an experience but it's 
like a dream now. It, well, I mean, it's a long time ago, David, if that's fair to say, but it, just the idea of being 15 years of age and playing, even, you know, the young players at Barcelona don't play in front of, you know, the most no, part of 100,000 people. Well, of course, in those days, times were different and uh, the masses of buses that Sharabanks, perhaps they were called then, they just travelled to Wembley with parties of school children. They, you know, they came, that was the annual event to go to the big game at Wembley. Um, it could have been Germany, it could have been Scotland, but there was it, it alternated. But so we had a very good team. Team. When you, so um, obviously uh, you, you're 15 years of age, you're a very hot property, and you decided in the end to sign for your local club, Nottingham Forest. Why? why I dare say other clubs were after you, even yeah. in those days. <laughs> I had various predators come to the door, offering everything from eggs to a. Well, we didn't have they didn't have cars so much in those days, but I can assure you there was various uh, things dangling in front of my family. But uh, no, I, st I stayed on at school. I took my O levels and I went to my local team, Nottingham Forest, where I'd been training with anyway. And so, but strangely enough, uh, Tottenham, Bill Nicholson, uh, I was very close to signing to Tottenham then because Tottenham to me was a dream team in sixty sixty one. When I saw Tottenham play, I saw the beautiful game. Well, people tell me I'm I'm, I'm too young, obviously. People tell me even now people who saw that team so there's been some wonderful teams in this country since but none better maybe that's good but none better uh, wonderful footballers you know I saw people like Baker and Blanchfire playing a 1-2 in their own 18-yard uh, box you know everyone knows the team Brown, Baker, Henry Blanchflower Norman, Mackay uh, Jones. Medwin or Dyson Cliff Jones great outside left uh, John White the wonderful dear John White Bobby Smith Les Allen great team and then later on, of course, other great Tottenham teams, Jimmy Greaves, whatever, you know, always had that reputation for playing what I call the glory game, the right type of football. You well, don't always have to win, but you have to play well and entertain. In 1960, you, you um, signed for Nottingham Forest, made your debut at 17, and there follows uh, a playing career that takes you all over the country. You just made me laugh by saying you've got a geography qualification, so um, it's easy to find Luton and Shrewsbury and Exeter. Um, well, a number of clubs, Peterborough too. Um, tell me about your playing career. What do you, what do you remember? I mean, it's a lot of it takes place in the lower leagues, and, and often I'm, I hope I'm not being disrespectful in the lower parts of the lower leagues. Yeah, hu hugely enjoyable. I mean, I left Forest, three different managers. Billy Walker signed me. Then there was Andy Beattie, then Johnny Carey. I, I soon got the message when Johnny Carey came. He signed another two outside rights, including a very good one called Chris Crow. And I remember speaking to Peter Taylor, who was a great friend of mine, Brian Clough's right hand really? man, and Peter said to me you need first team football you can't hang around too long so Luton came in for me they paid about £8,000 which was fair money then they had a two uh, England schoolboy colleagues uh, John O'Rourke and Ray Whittaker but we were fighting a relegation battle and the manager was a lovely man but he was a comedian he was a joker and I think so who I was that? A, a man called Bill Harvey uh, I learnt more from bad managers of course in my time tell me about that, some of those as we good go through managers. Yeah. so uh, three years at Luton broke my leg badly and never really recovered Luton then were going through a good period when Alan Brown came in with uh, the vehicle and general people who sponsored the club and they took them up the leagues I'd been I've gone to Shrewsbury I was then with the most surly manager I ever dealt with or ever he dealt with me was a man called Arthur Rowley but we missed promotion by the fraction of a point did ever so well at Shrewsbury but it was a one year period hold on uh, hold on what do you mean to say surly what do you mean he was he couldn't um, he, he wasn't a happy man he left everything to his coach listen he was a great goal scorer and a, a, a very fine player he's got three, over 300 league goals wonderful record Arthur Rowley but he was poor at man management he was very poor at man management 
but he had some good players. I think we should remind people, of course, we're in an era here before coaching badges and all that. The managers were varied hugely from people who did have tracksuits and stopwatches. I think... Uh, Danny, people... they used to referee games with their Crombie coats on and their tippers. They George... used to stand in the middle of the field trying to referee a football match. I was match. just about to say, George Martin was one of your managers at Luton. I understand that he used to train with wearing a trilby. I, I remember George, yeah. very dis- much. He was a disciplinarian. He was a serious man. But um, I had another comedian, wonderful guy at uh, Exeter. Frank Broom was a lovely man, ex-England international. Um, he, was a, he was a character. Uh, John Newman took over from him. I moved then... Uh, uh, Exeter, Exeter was good for me. We had a very good League Cup run. We played Tottenham. The great Jimmy Greaves scored four at Tottenham. We lost 5-3. But in the same season, we'd beaten Sheffield Wednesday. I remember Don Megson marked me, Gary's father. And then we play, went to Tottenham, lost 5-3. And in the same season, played Manchester United at St James's Park in the FA Cup. Well, there have been European champions, I'm guessing. Yeah, if I remember rightly, yeah. Danny, people like Carlo Sartori was playing, Fitzpatrick, lesser names, but Manchester United were emerging. That's George Best. That- George Best played in that That's interesting then. So, I mean, there were European champions. Did they put out their reserve team then? Did they rotate even then? No. No, they yeah. put out a strong side. Okay. Uh, Exeter uh, were beaten three-one that day. Yeah, your memory is fantastic. You were in deep. I've got, I've got notes. You're doing this from memory. Yes, you did indeed beat uh, Exeter three goals to one. Um, and you continued at Exeter. Obviously, and enjoyed it. Although it was a struggle. You're in the lowest league there, and you're seventeenth in in '69, eighteenth in in 1970. Though again, I should make the point. Um, that's one of the ways in which football has changed. At the old fourth level, you didn't get relegated into the conference, did you? There was the, there was the no. amazing, the, the amazing no. carve up of uh, re-election well you learn more in adversity than you do when you were succeeding but tell me just let's stop let's stop we are rattling ahead here tell me about football in the lower leagues football in the fourth division the fourth level in the, in the, in the late 60s what were the facilities like poor pitches small dressing rooms I remember going to places like Sealand Road Chester very poor facilities small, uh, tiny dressing rooms <coughs> um for example, Exeter City, leaving at 8 o'clock in the morning to travel north up to Bradford. That was, uh, by, before the motorways. A long day, you know, I used to fall asleep on the bus. It was, did they have, did, where did they train? A park or in the, have you have a training no, facility on the pitch? Have, well, they, no, they didn't train on the pitch. They, they had an area to go to, or we trained at Exeter University. We had a right. very good doctor there who was a very good, ahead of his time, man called Dr. Travers, who was very good. We did a lot of work to music which, and to rhythms. Really? Yes, it was very interesting training at Exeter City. I enjoyed Exeter City. Had quite a good time. Nice part of the world City. too. Yeah, nice part of the world. You know, if you lost a game on a Saturday, you could always go to Torquay or Dawlish or Tynmouth <laughs> on the Sunday and and have a nice little walk. And uh, no, was, I enjoyed Exeter. But we we came back. I got married to Maureen. We came back to uh, to near Luton, Peterborough. Jim Eiley took me. Jim was a nice man. I knew him from Forest as a left half and went to Tottenham, of course. But uh, Jim used to run the players around the track, and that was Jim's idea really of uh, getting players fit. And uh, wasn't my idea. I was more of a tactical thinker or you know, how can we improve what are we doing have we got pace wide where where's the brains where's the schema just what as you just got? as a boy you were always going to be a player as a player were you always going to be a coach David well I took a coaching badge at a very young age and I went to Lily and got my full badge at a very young age too and I not worship but I respected tremendously Alan Wade who was the director of the football coaching at the time because Charlie Hughes took over Charlie Hughes has been uh, pilloried vilified for, vilified as okay. the long ball ma- pilloried for some of his tactics the position of maximum opportunity various aspects of his game but I have to say there's a balance between direct play and working the ball patiently 
and it's getting that balance correctly and being able to change your not change your philosophy necessarily but during a game being able to make a change to suit the opposition or to try and get above the opposition who are maybe getting on top at that time. I mean, like all professional sports, it is evolving very, very quickly. And um, you're right, you have to have a plan B. I say this because just watching one or two teams now who've started to make life difficult for Barcelona, they, you know, a year and a half ago, everyone thought, well, this team is just going to steamroller absolutely everybody. People play very deep now. The Italian teams have learned to play not four and four, but eight across the, the width of the penalty area. They're making life difficult, Barcelona. Things move on, don't they? Yes, I think that they've learned what they've done against Barcelona is they've retreated, but they haven't marked too tight. In other words, if you mark too tight, they can play the ball the one, around the you. The one-two comes they off. They enjoy that. The wall pass, yeah. They want that. They want the space behind you, so they want to get tight. One of my greatest players I worked with, obviously, was Hoddle. Hoddle liked people to get tight because he would flick the ball round them and then walk round them and get the return. What they're doing against Barcelona at the moment, I feel, is they're dropping off them, but then once they drop off them, they're not closing them down particularly. They're just waiting for them, but not going to compete against them directly because they know technically they are superior to they are to what they are what kind of um, football was being played in England in the in the 60s when you were playing I mean uh, you mentioned Charles Hughes there he is um, he was a proponent of the long ball among other things and he did have a number of disciples and you end up with Graham Taylor as England manager um, uh, and you know Graham is is unabashed he thinks that direct football is the way to play Um, the pitches were bad coaching was I don't know what, what level it was what kind of football were you playing in the 60s David what type of was it passing game or was it uh, heading for a centre forward or what I think it was a mixture there wasn't the work of the ball across the back waiting for the opposition to come and pinch it and then seizing the opportunity to increase the pace and quicken the pace Uh, people played you know one of the main differences was everyone had two strikers yeah. Now the game has changed completely. I think it was Howard Wilkinson probably when he came back around from a youth tournament decided that the foreign teams were playing with two wide and one up the middle. I have to say that if I was taking a team today, I would go back to trying to play with two strikers, one dropping off and one flank player who tries to seek out the weakness of which either fullback and who could float to either side. But this is fascinating, David, because in my mind you had your greatest success um, at Luton, a kind of 4-3-3 that I recall, but more importantly at Spurs, with that famous season with Clive Allen absolutely as a lone striker. Well, it was a 4-5-1, Danny, but at the same time, it suited Glenn Hoddle magnificently because he didn't have to track back. Glenn wasn't a person who wanted that ugly side of the game. He wanted to receive the ball and be the conductor of the orchestra. And playing off Clive, he was our second striker believe it or not. But the chances developed for Waddle, who didn't really like playing wide right. But had to, we played Aston Villa one day, 3-0. He came to see me after the game and said, David, he said, don't fancy this. I said, eventually you'll get your time. Glenn goes to Monaco. Chris moves inside. Chris moves also to to uh, to France. You know, wonderful well, say, players. Yeah. But we had a we had a you know we had a little ferret in midfield, Paul Allen. We had a wonderful link man, Ardelis. We had a great creator in Hoddle, and we had Clive Allen, who basically just played across the width of the 18-yard box. And I can tell you, he had so many traits that you couldn't be complimentary about. He wasn't the quickest. He wasn't really the bravest. He wasn't the best in the air. But he but 
all round, he just knew where those goalposts were. He was fantastic goal scorer. That's not a bad talent to have, getting the ball across the goal line, is it? Oh, people, people still want to pay money for that, don't they? Clive was, he could turn as well. He could turn. My first game, you got a hat-trick at Aston Villa, my very first game at you Tottenham. Want, you want to save your complimentaries for Clive. I hope we're going to talk to him a little later on. Um, you come to the end of your playing career at Peterborough. Um, yes, Peterborough. Uh, what, 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 you, uh, well, uh, Peterborough, towards the end of that season, I got a call from uh, Peter Taylor, uh, who was working with Brian Clough, and said, look, there's a job going at Nuneaton. Um, would you be interested? I was 28. I said, Peter, I'm not ready for that. I'm too young. He said, no. He said, um, he said you'll be surprised there's a lot of crap out there. He was most complimentary. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> he said, I'm sure you'll be good enough. Don't worry about your age. Go down there and speak to them. There was two other people in for that job, Danny. I think it was Davy Gibson and Morris Setters, two very established people players who mm-hmm. had fine careers I make a joke now that I accepted less money than they offered and that's how I got the job but I remember my chairman Alf Scattergood and the board there I, I had a good run at Nuneaton it was, it was great, uh, great experience, a great apprenticeship and I'd advise any manager, I started off at Nuneaton at the same time Howard Wilkinson was at Boston, uh, Jim Smith started at Boston, Ron, on, at Ron Atkinson at uh, Kettering uh, and we served proper apprenticeships in my opinion when I got my first job at Luton I'd done my miles but isn't, isn't it, the, the issue seems to me to be now that with the exception of Paolo Di Canio, about whom more later, managers from the lower leagues are not getting the chance, even at championship level now. No, I mean, occasionally at championship, but not at the top level. No, it's a very sad indictment of what's happening because the foreign owners are more au fait with foreign coaches. The foreign coaches are more au fait, obviously, with foreign players. So there is a, a, a really difficult pathway now for the young manager and it's really sad because I can tell you so many young managers who dropped off the roundabout before they were able to get one revolution so difficult for them and if you stay too long and you have that bad season which is inevitable yes you can get thrown off and you never recover and I think it's really sad and it's something that we're really looking we should look into uh, exactly and one of the things that I'm endlessly banging this desk here and talk sport about is the difficulty of getting talented young British players and Irish players into our better teams and the difficulty of getting coaches who clearly know what they're doing from the lower leagues I include the conference and beyond in that into the upper echelons of English football even as coaches never mind as managers that, that there is a blockage that is causing the game to become slightly contorted listen David I'll just remind you uh, you played for five clubs in total 185 league games scoring 26 goals how did you come about then that you eventually because we are going to talk about that, uh, your amazing time as, as manager of Luton Town how did you eventually end up at Luton <laughs> They're, well, ne- they're nearby. The two clubs are nearby for a start. I had two, two opportunities, really. Peter Taylor said, take your time. Um, you know, we'll, we'll look after you. We'll give you a job because we, we respect you. Uh, but Harry Hasson contacted me. Harry Hasson was a great, great character, you know. The manager. A great uh, man. Uh, and and uh, all these mixed metaphors that he used to say, like walls have ears, uh, you know. Um, re- remember to tell the chairman's wife she looks uh, nice every game after you lose. All sorts of silly things that Harry would say. He was a great joke teller. Anyway, Harry offered me a job at Luton. He told me what was going to happen and he was absolutely accurate. Ken Whitfield was going to go to Cardiff, the reserve team manager with Jimmy Andrews. Roy McCrowan went to America. Anyway, I became the reserve coach, worked with a man called Danny Bergara, who was an excellent coach, sadly now departed. Mm-hmm. And I moved up. When Harry moved to Sheffield United, Harry wanted to take me with me, put two envelopes on the table. He said, there's your offer, Danny. There's your offer, David. He knew one of us would go. He knew one of us would go with him. 
but the chairman of Luton is still alive, Mr Mortimer, a terrific chairman. He came to see me and said, David, the board like you, we would like to give you a chance as manager. Who knows, if I'd have done very poorly in the first 12 weeks, maybe I'd have been out. But fortunately, after losing 4-0 at Millwall, my first game in the FA Cup, I survived and I eventually established a nice position now, at Luton. Now, there's the issue. You take the job as manager, having been um, you know, a coach at the club, you take the job in January of 1978. Luton have their struggles, they've been up and down and they're getting up to the top league and they're now in the, in the, in the second tier. The, th- the interesting thing about this is that the average championship manager now gets, is it 10 months, you were allowed, and I'm not mm. saying to build the team. You went and got players from all over the British Isles. Mal Donachie came from Larne in Northern Ireland. I mean, a complete unknown. You're also developing your own players. I mean, I'm right in thinking that Ricky Hill, Brian Steen, Paul Walsh, they all... Paul might start at Charlton, didn't he? Yes, I signed Paul from Charlton. But but, but Luton developed three England internationals. I mean, Luton Town's talking about here. So proud. It's one of my proudest moments in the game that those boys came to me. Uh, None of them were internationals. Mallard played, to believe it or not, for under-21s for uh, Ireland uh, from Larne became a very fine player one of the best signings ever actually came I think we paid £15,000 eventually Luton sold him to Manchester United for about 600 after playing 500 games for Luton how about that um, but but wonderful players David Moss came from Swindon uh, Bob Hatton came from Blackpool Bob was a good player and then excellent deals uh, Brian Steen came from Edgware he was a fantastic player really top top player and wonderful centre forwards over a period of time the strange thing was Danny we won promotion by a street. Steve White scored over let me, 20. Sorry, let me, let, let, you don't know we go so quickly. I mean, you won that Division 2, as you say, by a street in 1982. But some of that was the pent-up anger of the previous season where you missed out on the last day. Very last day of the season, we had to win 3-0 at Bolton, which we did do. My right-back, Kirk Stevens, came from Nuneaton for nothing. Uh, was a very good league player. Final, finally, he went to Coventry. Uh, we won three nil at Bolton. Kirk scored two. Got into the dressing room. I'm afraid Swansea had won at Preston, which they needed to do. John Toshak. Swansea went up. Luton stayed down. We were distraught. I remember. I, I think when I went home, I think I had a little cry. It was all that season's work on the last day of the season. And you knew you had a good team as well. Oh, and I had a good team. But the following season, we kept our nerve and we won by a street. I think we lost four games or maybe even three, but it was a record at the time. I think Chelsea may have equaled it since. Well, you were eight points ahead of Watford, who were the next nearest well, to We you. were delighted with that. There was a great rivalry. Absolutely right. Um, which takes us into the into the top level of English football. And I say, the interesting thing about this is you've had four years to build a team. A team that, as I say, would eventually provide players for the England squad. It was an amazing achievement. Um, you struggled in 82-83 as teams often do and they come up out of what we now call the championship um, I think the big problem was um, your away form wasn't it you, uh, you find it very difficult to, to win away from home um, and conceded uh, you scored lots of goals away from home yeah some people said that I only coached uh, invention and creativity and wasn't worried about the defenders but we did some work on defending but uh, when I read articles now from players of yesteryear who did work with me they said that uh, nearly all my work was done in the attacking third and the middle third of the field with ideas had one or two clever free kicks Donaghy scored eight goals in one season from set not fr- from from open play 
How about that? Centre-halves. It's been a great thing with me that in the English game, the two centre-halves, one of them should be a ball player who comes through with the, uh, through the field. We saw Beckenbauer in 66. We've seen Walter Mateus since. But we've seen so few English centre-backs who come through and overload into the midfield. They just play stiff as centre-backs. We, we have to buy them from abroad now, David Luiz, Vertonghen. Uh, you're we, absolutely we have, we have right, absolutely them, right Danny. We yeah. should be cultivating them all those years. Absolutely. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So that 1982-83 season in the, in the, in the Premier League uh, ends for those of us of a certain age, and uh, because it's shown on television all the time, it ends with one of the most remarkable relegation scraps and uh, events. Um, and you at Main Road, running onto the pitch at the end to celebrate. Let me just remind people, on that last day, Luke needed to win at Manchester City to stay up. And um, with four minutes to go, it was still nil-nil. You'd brought on the substitute, uh, a gentleman of Yugoslavian origin, I think, called Radi Antic, himself a pretty good coach uh, in recent times. Oh, wonderful. Been yeah. at Barcelona, Real Madrid, Absolutely. Serbia. Br- brilliant coach. Um, and he scored the goal. And you stayed up. There was a pitch invasion led by yourself. I think Alex Ferguson may be a less graceful mover than you now. I think that's fair to say, but it, it was nothing much in it. You ran onto the pitch, that skipping run. I hope that's not how you were running when you were playing the game, David. No, I, had, I, was, more, day. I was more graceful and athletic, <laughs> but that was my flight of lunacy, Danny. And uh, unfortunately, I can't escape it. Um, it's there. But uh, you have to realise the build-up to that. You know, a few weeks before that, we were safe. And then all of a sudden, we were plunged into that bottom of, of the league. And on the penultimate Saturday, of that season all our four competitors at the bottom all won we lost heavily at home to Everton and all of a sudden we needed to go two games we had to go to Man United on the Monday and Man City on the Saturday two away games and we needed a win I gave two kids a debut at Man United we lost but 
it, it was all coming to that final game. It, it was incredible. Some of the work we did that week, I took the players away. I gave them the stick and the carrot. And oh, it was. Uh, we, I remember taking them to a hotel where we had to go up the motorway. So we were seeing all the supporters, all our allies in their orange scarves going up the motorway. It was a wonderful feeling that we weren't alone, that we had kind of an army of people behind us, that we were going to fight this, uh, this big club, this Manchester City, this run by this 40,000 people, all in the stadium when we arrived there at two o'clock. It, uh, it was an amazing ground, Main it, Road, it, wasn't it? It was an amazing atmosphere. It was an amazing day. Uh, some of the stories from that day, Peter Swales after the game, the comedian Eddie Large in the job, poor John Benson, he was distraught after they lost the game and he's passed away now, John, he was a nice man. He got the sack just after that game. I remember the bus coming, the, the, the policeman on the bus as we as we drove away in case anybody threw bottles at the bus, the police would dash off the bus. They were all Man United supporters. We had crates of champagne on the bus. They were drinking our champagne, the police. It was the most incredible day. It was the most incredible moment. And I think we all had a few drinks at a place called Tillington Hall in Staffordshire. And that, that's where we stayed on the way back and, and celebrated the escapology. Nobody, I mean, of course, um, it, it, it comes up all the time. But I think it's a great, very affection now. There's a great deal of affection in re-showing that uh, run of yours across the pitch. 30 years later, it's uh, you're still being remembered for that, among other things. One of the people uh, who helped the club do that was your club captain uh, and, I guess, close ally, and uh, both Brian Horton. And I spoke to Brian a little bit earlier, and uh, this is what he had to say about you and that famous day. Am I right in saying that David Pleat was one of your managerial mentors? Absolutely spot on, yeah. He was, um, after after spending uh, five years at Brighton and Alan Mullery, he left, and then I left at the same time, um, 81. And uh, he couldn't have worked out any better for, for all of us, really, because we had a, we had a fantastic team, um, good football, learned an awful lot off him in terms of his, uh, well, everything about him, really, psychology, which he was, uh, psychologist, uh, his, 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 his um, Football standards were very, very high. Wanted us to play football, wouldn't accept us just kicking the ball and stuff. Uh, his training was excellent, so I learnt a lot off him. It was one of the the best things I ever did because it's great to pick up different pieces from different managers, which you do. Gordon Lee, I had. Yeah. As I said, I didn't have many managers to be perfectly truthful, but all gave me a little bit. But David was was way, way above. Uh, you know, I think I think um, he, he should have managed England at one point. I think he was wow. as good as that. Brian, I will say this: my my memory of that Luton team is all you're absolutely right that they got the ball down and tried to play in a very modern way actually but also that they went through uh, uh, when you when you got promoted out of the second division and then had your struggles in the, in the top level um, my memory is that they had tremendous spirit as well that must be down somewhat to the manager also yeah it, it, it was I mean he it, signed some good players he brought some players through the through the, the youth ranks which he which he did he, he loved he loved putting the kids in um, Gary Parker Ray Daniels Frankie Bourne people like this that you know that went on to have good careers and uh, he loved putting the kids in with the senior players you know but again he, he, he just wanted them to, to come in and enjoy the football you know he used to come in sometimes you'd win a game and he'd, he'd basically say to us, I haven't enjoyed watching you play today he really wanted to enjoy watching us play and he gave us our head to be you know that way I mean Rick Hill was a fantastic player that oh. played alongside me did all my running for two years Ricky and uh, 
David Moss, Brian Steen, and Walshy came in. A little Fashilo in midfield with with the three of us. And that's how we played. I played the olden role, which was which was new. Uh, you know, played four three three with that, just one out and out winger. But I mean, the first year in the cha- in, in equivalent to the championship, we we won it by how many points? We were, we were a fantastic team, scored goals for fun, and uh, it was a joy to work for him. Uh, absolutely, um, and as you say after that promotion, where you were the outstanding team um, at your level in the entire country, um, then you had your struggles, famously um, that take you to the last day of the season. Now, of course, Brian, you're very uh, very associated with Manchester City Football Club. You managed the team between '93 and '95, but uh, I guess your memory of that day at Main Road, where you avoid a relegation in the last few minutes, must be pretty clear as well. It was, and everywhere I go in Manchester now, I still do lots of their, their supporters and clubs, and every time I go, that's the one question they want to ask about what went on that day. And, you know, leading up to that, we, we, were, we hadn't been in the relegation, but we were out of it, and then we lost to Everton, to Man United, and all of a sudden we had to go to Man City on, on that last Saturday and win the game. And again, he was fantastic because he was low-key. Um, he, he'd actually arranged um, a testimonial game for, for Ross Jenkins at, at, at Watford on a Wednesday, you know, presuming that we weren't going to be in a relegation battle. Oh, wow. Um, I didn't play in that, but we lost that game as well. So leading up then from Wednesday night to Saturday, but I think the important thing was that he drummed into us. We had to win. A draw was no good. City needed a draw, and I think it's hard to play for a draw, but obviously then Radianti scores late on like that, and uh, Wayne Turner actually said he'd come off for Radianti. Radianti's come on, so we've got the winner. And he reckoned that David fainted in the in the, in the dugout. <laughs> it was that, that emotional, and then obviously when he ran on now, Brian, we, 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 I know what you're going to say, but I must ask you, have you just seen it on television or could you see him doing that strange skipping run onto the pitch? It's, it's, it's famous, isn't it? It's really famous. <laughs> it really is an icon, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, he, I think David gets a bit embarrassed by it all, but why shouldn't he show emotions oh, like that? Oh, absolutely. He ran on to me and he kissed me on the cheek and he said, <laughs> Brian, you can go anywhere you want. Those are his words. I don't know if he remembers that. And I said, Gaffer, no, I can't because my contract's up. <laughs> and I just signed a two-year deal. And my con- Players don't do that now, do they? They want new contracts with two years left and whatever. But it was... Uh, and then he talked me into staying for, for another year, didn't he? I could have gone to another... Cl- quite a few clubs actually because my contract was up and I spoke to a few because David hadn't really offered me a new contract and right at the end he came back to me and said what have you got on the table and I told him what I got on the table he said would you would you sign for me again and stay and which I did and then he helped me get my first management job at all or city after after another year you know so but I, I wouldn't have swapped that for anything I mean it was a, it was a major major uh, decision to leave Brighton because obviously they were still in the, the first division equivalent to the to the Premier League and to leave it after captaining them from the third division up was 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 a big wrench but I couldn't have gone to a better club or a better manager. Brian, I have to say, not many people avoid relegation and get a kiss from David Pleat on the same day, so you're a lucky <laughs> I, man. Yeah, uh, I don't want another one off him. I no, just, no, no, we, one is plenty. One is plenty. We speak regularly, and, and all, he, all, all he ever does, you know what he's like, he talks football, 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 and so do I, and, you know, we got on great. We did as captain-manager, and I think you have to have that relationship, and I try to do that when, when I became a manager, to have that relationship, you know, with a, with a captain, because he, he, he would let me air my views and other players, to be fair, and, and generally the younger players first when we're having team meetings. We always wanted them to speak of first before the senior players. But what I learnt off him in terms of, of the coaching was uh, was 
was fantastic. Yeah, Brian Holton there, who clearly holds you in, in the highest esteem, David, which is uh, nice to hear. Well, um, he was a terrific bloke. I mean, he was the catalyst in a way because he was the captain. He was a right hand in the dressing room and um, a, a real football person, a, a proper person. He played uh, the enforcing midfield player without fouling, um, led players by example. And uh, it's not surprising that he was a successful manager. In fact, uh, listening to him, I, I get quite emotional, really, really because uh, particularly when he talks about England, you know. I mean, he was a fantastic guy. He underrates his own contribution. I mean, when he said there, uh, we'll talk more about Luton in a second, that you should have managed England. Um, did it ever come near to you, David, particularly when you put together a great Spurs team as well? Well, there was a lot of uh, discussion at one time, I think. Um, obviously, I was going, uh, of the younger managers at the time who were being uh, pushed around for various job opportunities. You know, Danny, when I was at Luton, four times I met other chairmen of, of quite well-known clubs and uh, decided to stay at Luton for whatever reason. I was comfortable in the environment. I I had good players, I was making a name. I only had ambitions probably to go to a really big club and Tottenham was always in the back of my mind. And strangely enough, I had the opportunity to go to Tottenham the year before, but then it faded because Peter Shreves did quite well towards the end of that season and Irving Scholar, through a journalist, pulled away from, from, from me. But the following season, of course, he came back for me. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit more about your time at Luton then, because you did stay after that famous relegation battle for another three or four years. Um, lots of things, an FA Cup semi-final, of course, in, in 1985. Um, Mick Harford came and was a demon, a, a very tough man up front. Um, you survived the riot. At, uh, I mean, it's one, again, if, you're, if your run across the pitch is one of the iconic images of English football in the 80s, so is that riot with the Millwall fans at Kenworth Road. Absolutely. George Graham was manager of Millwall. It was a, a terrible night. I mean, we were, had to go to the House of Commons the following day to speak to the government. Did you have to go the next day? The, the next day we went. I had to go with the chairman, the chief executive, John Smith, David Evans, our right-wing chairman. Uh, we had to go to the House of Commons. Because he was an MP, wasn't he? That he was an MP. He was yeah. Mrs Thatcher's uh, little boy who came from kind of a social background to become a conservative and uh, her mouthpiece in many ways for the working class anyway that's by the by but um, certainly the Millwall game was an amazing experience and I always say Mr Hutchinson of Harrogate who said twice I will try and make sure we finish this game after he had to take Referee. the players off the field he was terrific um, but it was so sad that night you know Danny, two-thirds of the Luton season ticket holders who sat in that what was called the Bobbers stand never came back in the immediate years after that game. Eventually some did return, but the, it was so frightening that evening, I cannot tell you, not just the running on the pitch and the tearing up of, of seats, but throwing billiard balls into where people were sitting and, and, and the tunnel. People were, were, were blooded. Ambulance men all over the place. We never thought the game would finish. And I remember sitting with George Graham for about an hour. It must have been God and midnight in the boardroom. And George more or less told me in as many words he wouldn't be staying there much longer. And he built a good team there. But that was the sixth round of the FA Cup. And of course, because it was such a great night for us to get to the semi-final, it was just masked by that terrible evening. I mean, it is. Uh, and uh, thank you for, for, the, for those recollections. 
elections. And of course, it, life is so convoluted that sometimes um, there are funny things to it too, if I might be so bold. Um, there's a, a young woman here, she is young, you can work out exactly in a second, who helps her with on the engineering side. And she always tells me she was at that game. And I go, what how, What are you talking about? You couldn't possibly. She, said, she was inside her mother, who was on the terraces, heavily pregnant that day. So it, uh, it, all kinds of mad things happen. One of the I want to talk to you about with Luton Town at that time before we come on to you uh, joining Spurs is the plastic pitch um, you, you had one of the, I mean not like the plastic pitches of now you had an old AstroTurf pitch well it was an artificial pitch um, I can remember very clearly there was a, the, the FA looked at it there was a working parties from universities it was a Cress Nicholson pitch um, the opposition didn't like playing on it they came down on the Fridays and we offered them the facilities to train on it but they I don't think they realised or realised too late really that you needed to play the ball to feet that if you played straight balls they were no good they would run away you had to play off, yeah. clever diagonal passes short passes it suited us we had players who were technically short when they first came to the club I include Mal Donaghy in that Peter Nicholas was another one improved both of them tremendously on the artificial pitch because it made you have a good first touch the ball came to you sharp and you had to cushion the ball and play and it was did a the really opposition, good did the opposition hate it? Uh, most of the opposition, I think it was in there. It was a mental thing. They they kind of resented the fact they had to play on a pitch that was different to theirs. Caused a lot of aggravation. Commercially, it was a success. I think at the time they were quoted around the boardroom table that it would bring two hundred fifty thousand pounds a year commercial value into the club because you could have concerts and things. It like was that. used day and night by yeah. the, the by the local community. Um, uh, we got tagged with it, of course, the artificial pitch, and there was all sorts of problems when David Evans was the chairman, obviously with the banning of the away fans which was a massive problem after Millwall we, be, we became kind of isolated from the rest of football it wasn't just the banning of the away fans the home fans had to bring identification as well I think it was the start of the decline of Luton Town that we, when we know where that's ended yes of course well the worst thing that happened about Luton Town and I say this quite honestly without uh, fear or favour you know the directors all of a sudden just walked away from it they took their money and they took good interest as well, sold the ground, and that was the beginning of the end because they had no crown jewels anymore. They didn't even own their own ground, no freehold in a horrible part of the town. And uh, yes, I think you're right, Danny. That was part. That was partly the start of the demise. Having established yourself as one of the best managers um, in the country at Luton Town, um, you do get the big job that um, eventually was going to come your way. And when you go back to a club that I know you, you held in high esteem at the time, uh, Tottenham Hotspur, how did that happen? Well, through an intermediary, no agent Seneca Stanley, a journalist rang me up and said they'd like to speak to you. And I spoke to them and I said, look, this is uh, it's time I'm left Luton. I've done my time here. And uh, I went to White Hot Lane. Big job. Top players. Didn't sign too many. <clears throat> took Mitchell Thomas with me from uh, Luton, which caused a bit of aggravation at the time with David, right back, yeah. David Evans once again, uh, who you know, suggested there was all sorts of clauses in the agreement. They even got a bonus, Luton, when, if Tottenham were to get in a cup final and win it which is another interesting one. And I signed Mitchell and I signed uh, Richard Goff, who was a very fine centre-back and defender. And um, we cultivated a five-man midfield, which gave me great enjoyment and great pleasure. But, of course, as you say, we finished up with no trophies. David, the 1986-87 season at White Hart Lane, where you were in your first full season as Spurs manager, is extraordinary in many, many ways. You play a system that very few had seen played in this country before, 4-5-1. Hugely talented team. Clive Allen scores nearly 50 goals I mean it's almost impossible to think about it now and the team 
He's in the running for the, to win the title, gets to the semi-final of the League Cup and the final of the FA Cup. Tell us, tell us about your time at Spurs. Well, it was quite incredible, really. I think we not stumbled on the system. We talked about it and we decided to go for it. But in a way, you know, circumstances sometimes create your thoughts. And um, Graham Roberts went off to Glasgow, to Glasgow Rangers. Famously, you said something, uh, I think, joking about uh, it. Yes, I made a joke. Badly, and I, I was always guilty of making a bit of innuendo or silly comments. You said he was going off to Glasgow I remember, to kick people yes, in Scotland. News of the world, dear Reg Drury. They, and he said, well, it's sub-editors used it. I said, he's kicked a few in England, now he's going to kick a few he in Scotland. On, it Graham, was, bizarrely, took it was, Umbridge, didn't he? It was said, uh, it was, it was, like it was a comical comment, but unfortunately it was taken, obviously, in the wrong way, and they used it as a headline. And, of course, Graham, reacted Graham wasn't the brightest I think he's mellowed and I think he's a, he's a better guy for it. he's okay Graham but he was a tough character uh, so Graham Roberts went to Scotland Tony Galvin got injured and uh, we developed this uh, very fine side which had a five-man midfield uh, the creativity of Waddle on the right who probably wanted to play more central Glenn was the second striker wonderful talented he could cushion the ball play with either foot backspin wonderful range of pass Clive Allen this uh, predatory centre forward and then we had Ardelis who was the link man and we had uh, Stevie Hodge who I signed on the left hand side who the Tottenham crowd never really appreciated but no. he did the work and he floated from in to out out to win did the defensive work never played as well probably for me as he did play for Cluffy uh, went to Aston Villa. Nice lad, Stevie. Yeah, Steve, who, who owns, uh, who has the possession of the shirt that Maradona's Maradona. wearing. He did the hand of God. And when I first asked him to show it to me on a television programme, he brought it down in a Tesco's bag. And I said, <laughs> you do realise this shirt's probably worth half a million pounds, do you? He had no idea that the, no, uh, the market was like that. Um, and it worked. Um, oh, it worked. The team yeah, played worked beautiful football and you were... Yeah, we stormed. We stormed up the league once we started playing the system. I think we were at Oxford. I think we were something like 2-0 down, I think. I'm not sure. We won 4-2. And, uh, you know, I remember coming back on the bus and thinking, we may have got something here. Other teams may be slow to catch on to this, something new. And I always remember Jimmy Ledbetter playing deeper tip switch in the early days when Ramsey was taking them up the leagues. And and the teams, Ted Phillips and... uh, the centre Crawford, cent- mm-hmm. the two Ray central strikers. Yeah. Uh, they were the central strikers, and teams were slow to catch on. And teams were slow to catch on to the way we played, and we really played well. I remember the wonderful man John Lyle, now sadly gone, saying such lovely things to me after we beat West Ham five 0 He said, "You must be very proud to to manage this team." I said, "Look, the players are good players. It's it's not not a difficult thing to do." John Lyle gave me great praise. But anyway, we went on. We had a wonderful season. We were probably always never going to get quite to the top because we had some ground to make up but I remember in the penultimate game or the uh, we, we played all the kids at Everton and I think we lost 1-0 and Everton can play they got a full house but they complain that we didn't play the full side we, we got fined £10,000 on a field. run up to the FA Cup final, on a field. Yeah. yeah I played the weak, weak side we still finished third well, listen, yeah, the, the sadness was the League Cup I think three games against Ars- Arsenal Arsenal led us in the last minutes of the very third game we'd gone to Arsenal uh, first leg won one nil. came back Anyway, we were tossed up the third game. We played at Tottenham, and in the very last minutes, they overturned a 1-0 to win 2-1. Uh, and that, that was very... I remember the, the stands, all the people just moving away with about six minutes to go after Arsenal scored. It was, you know, it was, it was like a death. Um, and, of course, we went to the cup final. We won every game convincingly, scored lots of goals on the way to that final, played Coventry. We were the favourites. Sadly, we lost in injury time. There's all sorts of stories surrounding that game. I've always believed that had Neil Midgley, another one passed away, poor Neil. 
had to, he sent Kilkline off, which he should have done for a very bad challenge in the centre circle. That rebounded on us because he eventually had to hobble off. They replaced him with a substitute, Rogers, and he was involved in the winning goal in extra time. But I look back on that and I made a mistake. I know that David Bennett, I know now in retrospect, that David Bennett was giving Mitchell Thomas, our left back, a harder time than I really could see from sitting in that horrible position at ground level and I think that was one of the problems that we had that day that we never got to grips with and David was man of the match to be fair to uh, him David was yes and of course Cyril Regis always had a bit of a sign on Goffey there's no question about that Um, he always did well against Goffey and Hoochin scored that diving header but that's the way football goes. Well, we, we lost a classic cup final. I could, uh, I, I think it was one of the best sides in English football not to win a trophy. I have to say that. And at the spearhead was a man who benefited from the system you developed with 49 goals that season. A former um, uh, guest here on My Sport Enough. And I'd like to say we're joined by Clive Allen. Hello, Clive. Good morning. Uh, welcome welcome back to uh, My Sporting Life. Talk to us about David Pleat and playing in that team. Well, I think um, what David did when he came to Spurs was he looked at the players that he had in the squad um, and, he, and he looked at what was going to be the best way to play for them uh, individually, I think, and uh, collectively put it together with a system that, that he adopted for us. I know that um, you know he's talked about that, that game at Oxford, and I remember on the Friday before that him saying to the players, you know, win, lose or draw, I'll, I'll take the, uh, the blame as to whatever happens. But... Um, whether we stumbled across it or it was, uh, you know, it was, it was a piece of genius from, from David. It, it certainly worked. I think, um, from my own personal point of view, um, it gave me a license to to take up positions, to get into goal scoring positions, and and the ammunition was was given me by um, by some fantastic players. And I think everybody enjoyed watching us play through that period. And um, we scored lots of goals. We let a few in, but we scored lots of goals. I must say, Clive. Um, does it bother you because Bale currently gets the bulk of Spurs' goals and people say they're a one-man team you got 49 goals no one said that they were a one-man team when you were getting all the goals no 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 it doesn't bother me in the slightest um, um, as, you know as, as, I, as I said about David I think he, he realised what my strengths were as, as were a number of the other players um, and, and he put this system together I remember him taking all sort of defensive responsibility away from Glenn Give Glenn the ball. You know, it, it was it was um, sort of the the late eighties when when we adopted this this way of playing, and we um, whether we call people cold or not, I'm not so sure, but um, we certainly have had a lot of quality in the team. You look back on it now, Clive, uh, as a, a, probably I guess the most enjoyable season of your football career. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I think um, David had, David had arrived just before the end of the season, and. Um, I remember him saying to me, he asking me what I was going to do. And I'd only played 12 games at the end of the previous season because I'd been injured for a year before that. And he said to me, look, go away on holiday. If you want to train in the summer, because my plan was to train all through the summer because I I felt good, I'd come back from injury. I wanted to be ready for the start of the season. He said, take a holiday, work for three weeks. He said, pre-season will be hard, which it was. Um, And I got off to an absolute flyer at the beginning of the season with a hat-trick at Villa on the opening day. And didn't look back after that. So it was it was the best, you know, the most productive season of my career, without a doubt. Well, Clive, listen, thank you very much for joining us here and uh, playing paying such a glowing tribute to the, both that team and to its manager, David Pleat. Thanks, Clive. David, in October of 1987, after just over a year at Tottenham, um, you resigned from your position at Tottenham manager. Obviously, there were off-field issues. 
Um, can you? Would you like to describe really how, how what it meant that you had to resign? It was an impossible situation. The pressure was too great. It was a horrible, dark moment in my life, Danny. And uh, with respect, there are so many elements of that. Uh, it was like an assassination at the time, you know, you felt you'd murdered someone or you'd done something terrible, but it did feel as bad as that. And uh, I've always believed that certain people, I make a joke actually now that I'm waiting for a couple of people to pass away, which is a terrible thing to say, but one day I want to write a book, and uh, but I want it when I've concluded completely my football career, because it is an important part of my life. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, I, w I was hounded through the paper. That I'll, I'll just, people made money out of. The I'll, I'll just make the point that you you were uh, arrested for a minor misdemeanor. I wasn't arrested. Uh, sorry, uh, sorry. You were you were. No. People said in the papers you reported that something had happened with you, and yes. of course it became a, a newspaper campaign. Yeah, it was indeed. A girl a girl uh, was paid money to tell a story I'd never ever met, and um, it kind of uh, was exaggerated, um, and it grew, and. Um, the pressure was great. And I remember thinking, you know, well, I wasn't sure which way to turn, to be quite honest. And sometimes you can get bad advice. And uh, the club were OK at, at first, but then I, I, it was quite clear they had other things in, in mind and they didn't want to suffer any uh, humiliation themselves. So I needed a lot of support. And I remember going to the... had a lunch with Brian Moore and a journalist, Norman Giller it was, uh, of the Daily Mirror, I think, at the time, in the Strand. And I remember Brian saying, you know, litigation, lengthy, ugly, costly, um, and you're going to be out the game. And you're a football man. Get back in and do what you're good at. And it was very difficult. And, of course, it was terribly difficult for family. My son was going through university, got, did wonderfully well, got a first at Oxford. He's now a surgeon. He's done fantastically well. But... Obviously, all sorts of family feelings. I don't want to go into it, as I say, too great. One day I want to write the book, and that would, and it will be a good book. But um, and the worst thing was certain people who'd been close. I, when I left, um, when I left Luton, I um, had the chairman of Luton come round to my house with his wife with champagne and flowers. They didn't want me to go to Tottenham. It was very ugly. I can only say, I remember his last words when he left my house was, well, if you go to Tottenham, you'll pay for this. Luton has done well for you. We don't want you to leave. We'll give you anything that Tottenham offer you. We don't want you to go. You'll pay for this. And I always tried to think of different things and how, how it kind of evolved to such a story. And anyway, um, I decided, with various people advising me, to get back into it. Leicester came along fairly quickly um, and said that, uh, you know, they were more than happy to to employ me. But David, this was such a high profile thing. It made the front page of The Sun. Was there a time once you'd resigned from Spurs, did you ever worry that you would never work in football again or in public life again? It's very difficult to go back and think exactly what my thoughts were that time. But I suppose, Danny, that I would have to say possibly, although there was no court case, there was never anything no. like that. So there was no problem of kind of having a, a, a record of, or, or this type of thing. So, so it, all of all my friends were saying to me, of course, get back in. What you, what you, I can remember Ron Atkinson ringing me up and making a joke, joke about it. I thought, crikey, how can you joke about a thing like that? But that, and, and your family were, they backed you all the way? Fantastic. Fantastic. I have the, must have the best wife in the world and I have wonderful children. 
and um, that was no problem at all, Danny. And I, I look forward to the book, David, um, but I would just advise you not to be waiting for people to die because we, we all have limited span, even you, you know. Yeah, but my book would be better than most. Yes, OK, well, I, I'll take that. So you, you, you join Leicester City. What kind of club did you find? They were in the old second division at the time, weren't they? I had a wonderful honeymoon there. Really, was wonderful. Nice board, very democratic. Was it a relief to get back into the game? Uh, relief? Yes. yes, of course. I mean, I started, but I wasn't myself. No, I wasn't myself for a while, Danny. I, I didn't. And yet, Gary McAllister, I can remember telling, speaking much later when he was comparing me with another manager he had it, uh, later on, uh, spoke very well of my coaching abilities, which I was very proud to hear. But you, but you know, you weren't quite yourself. I didn't think I was. Quite, I didn't think I was quite myself. But we started. So, I took the team that were at the bottom of the league. I took over from Brian Hamilton, who was a really decent guy. Uh, Mr. Shipman employed me. He was the chairman. Democratic board, but with no money. Had a wonderful benefactor in the wings called Trevor Bennett, who went up to Newcastle and gave Newcastle the benefit of his finances. I took over a team and signed players like uh, Nicky Cross and Peter Weir. Peter Weir came from Aberdeen, from Alex. I had good chats with Alex before I signed Peter Weir. And uh, then I signed a boy called Nicky Cross from Walsall. I already had Osman as a centre-half in place. Russell Osman. I had McAllister. I changed McAllister's position. I remember speaking to Craig Brown. Why don't you play him for Scotland? And he eventually did, Craig Brown. Uh, Gary McAllister and Mike Newell, my centre-forward, who strangely and ironically... I signed originally from Wigan for Luton Town for £60,000. Whilst I was away at Tottenham, Luton had sold him to Leicester for £300,000 and I inherited him back at Leicester. A very fine team. I can remember James Lawton, who I really respected as a journalist, journalist, certainly did after he wrote this article, (laughs) writing a wonderful article about me at the end of the season saying that I'd regained my stripes and all that type of thing. And we shot right up the league and we made favourites. Uh, the last game of the season we played at Middlesbrough, Bruce Riox team, we won 2-1. We were outstanding and it caused Middlesbrough to miss automatic promotion. They had to play Chelsea in a very big game and I think there was a bit of a riot in that t- over two legs. And Middlesbrough did get up when they had people like Pallister and Cooper, a very, very good team. But we were terrific that day. But the following season we made favourites. I remember saying to the lads as they got in the bath after that game, we've got something going here, I hope no one deserts us. I remember making that comment, and it was made for Russell Osman because his contract was up, and that was a problem. And he went to Southampton, and we got 350000 for him. It was a good price. I remember Russell making the comment, I must be like wine, maturing with wine. I'm getting more expensive as I get older. Um, and I remember Brian Truscott, the secretary, came to the tribunal, but the manager didn't come. I think it was Chris Nickel at the mm-hmm. time. Anyway, I lost Osman, and I have to say, after that, I failed at Leicester City because I never found a suitable replacement for my centre-half, Osman. And we, and we st- stumbled, staggered, couldn't get over the line, couldn't make, that, couldn't make that jump ahead, lost other players, and lost McAllister, lost Mike Newell, Mike Newell to Everton, McAllister to Leeds... And that's the story. You lose your best players and they're hard to replace. David, you've, you've managed um, at a club which has good facilities and good resources at Tottenham Hotspur, by, by and large. Um, and you've managed other places, um, Luton, where they were, they were well run. And then you get on to Leicester. And we're going to talk about Luton in, in a little while again at the second time around. It is increasingly the case, isn't it, that English football, the managers, I think, have... I'd, get, I'd love to get your view on this. I mean, of course, you are the, the longest-serving member of the LMA. 
I think the managers outside of the top 10 clubs in this country have got an impossible task because it's, it's so much juggling money. I, 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 I want them. I want them to, to coach the players to be better. But there's always this, the, the clubs are all struggling in the background. There's, there's no stability. No stability. And I mean, the results business and the immediacy of their next game has always been there. However, that. however, young managers get on the roundabout, and unfortunately, I can remember when I was at Luton early on. I remember dear Ian Greaves telling me, "What you're going to do after a couple of years when we were getting better? It's time to move." I thought, "Time to move." Nine out of ten managers, even in those days, would say, "Bounce off your success and get another club." I went against the trend. I was the odd one out. I was the unorthodox one. I stayed and built the club and did better and better and better. And I enjoyed that. And eventually I got a big job. Nowadays, you get managers lower down who, when they do start doing well, they can't get that further opportunity. And then as soon as it goes wrong, of course, they're out. So they're knocked off the roundabout before it's done one revolution. And I feel so sad for them that they now can't progress and have the dream that I might have had to go to a really big club one day. I think it's very disappointing. And the strange thing, Danny, about it is the LMA, who always looked after the health and wealth of managers and tried to protect their contracts, has got stronger, is a much better organisation now commercially and in every aspect. However, disproportionately, the time that managers have in their clubs now under contract is getting far less and less. Yes, maybe the one thing that the LMA in recent years has secured a little bit better is they have been at least compensated for the balance of what their contract is. But it's very difficult managing now. And the influx of foreign managers is just something that I think we should really, really look at. I, t I agree with you about the latter, but it, it does beg the question then, if we're sucking in managers from all over the world and coaches from all over the world, very few British coaches and managers are going abroad, which I guess reflects something, because uh, with players you can say it's the wages. With coaches, it's something about the quality of coaches we're producing. Uh, but it also, also in the fact that someone said to me once, what would you have done again? I said, yeah, I would have learned Spanish when I was 16, 17 or 18, because then it would have given me the opportunity maybe later on if I wanted the opportunity and I had it twice, once for Olympiacos uh, and once a bit later on for a Spanish club lower down but they needed you to speak the language. And I think that holds a lot of our coaches back, that we're not as worldly as some of the foreign coaches that come in here. Well, we're very spoiled. We have English, which is the language of the internet. We're insular. We're insular. Yeah, yeah, we are. And the other thing about it, Danny, is that in France, Spain, Italy, and the bigger clubs, there's no English coaches there. We're, we're bringing them in. They're all coming in here, but we're not going out there. We may be managing in Tobago or the... Cayman Islands or, or these type of places. But these are English-speaking outcrops as well, to be fair. You know, you're right, you're, your point is absolutely well made. There is the language problem. And I, 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 I think we pretend it doesn't exist. But you can't go to a, an international club where half the, let's say it's Italy, half the players are Italian or two-thirds of them, and there's a load of Yugoslavs and, 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 and African boys. You can't speak to them unless you can speak, you know, Italian. You've got to speak the local language, and uh, we just don't have it, do we? No, absolutely right. Okay, well, listen, um, in June of 1991, after, as you, to use your words, not doing as well as you'd hoped at Leicester, you rejoin uh, Luton Town. You return to Luton in the summer of 1991. Um, the club were... It, it, we were just about to start the Premier League. I think the Luton were one of the victims of the restructuring of, of English football, weren't they? One of the founder members that never played in the Premier League. Quiz question. <laughs> Go on, tell us about that. That's the quiz question. Yeah. Well, the Luton second time was working with young players, lovely players. Mark Pembridge, Paul Telfer, all had good careers. John Hartson, Kerry Hughes, didn't have such a good career, but should have done. Scott Oakes. Mm -hmm. 
couple of wonderful uh, cup results. I remember giving a boy Tony Thorpe a debut at Newcastle, won uh, uh, scoring a goal, replay, won the replay, beat West Ham. Terrific. Got to semi-final Chelsea. But we were at Wembley and the boys thought this is the final. It wasn't the final. <laughs> I had to repeat it so many times that week. But all they could turn was their tickets. They wanted their tickets. The board were greedy with the tickets. And there was all sorts of side issues around that game. However, we played poorly. And I made a mistake. I should have played Hartson from the start. This is the 1994 FA Cup semi-final. Yeah. Which, odd enough, was, uh, you say they playing the semi-finals at Wembley. Yeah, um, Chelsea we played. Um, I had one previous wonderful semi-final at Villa Park with Everton when, when I had a, the previous Luton team. This was against Chelsea. And you picked Kerry Dixon, who was then, I guess, a veteran by that yeah. stage. The former Chelsea yeah. legend. Like instead Kerry. Of, instead of John Hartson. Well, I, I like Kerry, but yeah. I made a mistake. I mean, Kerry thought he was still playing for Chelsea that day. I mean, he was playing for Luton against Chelsea, <laughs> but of course his, his, his love was for Chelsea. Uh, no, I'm, that's a semi-joke. Yeah. But uh, John Hartson, I think, would have done more damage. The truth was, Cascarino gave us a problem in the air that day. Peacock fed off him, two goals. And Gavin Peacock, And yeah. uh, Glenn's sitting on the line there as the Chelsea manager uh, with Peter Shreve. Mm -hmm. And we went really home with our tails between our legs. We were a young side. But we, we, were, we were beaten. And, of course, Chelsea went on to play Manchester United in the final and I think lost 4-0. And I think a certain Eric Cantona did quite well. Yes, um, absolutely absolutely right. What, 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 what else did you achieve or not achieve with that Luton Times side second time round? Because people say you shouldn't go back. And I think Luton were a club... The strong seller in decline because all clubs are moving back to the forwards on a day by day basis, but they we, were we, forward. We've become away, a selling they? club. I mean, I yeah. did have a bad relationship with the chairman, David Coley. He had all these ideas about the new stadium, and he's a decent man. But I always remember him coming into the office one day, and I realised it's getting harder at Luton because we couldn't keep our good young players. And that was the problem. And I always remember once we were talking about John Hartson. I sold John Hartson in the end to Arsenal. David Dean rang me. Record George, fee for a teenager. George, yeah, George, two and a half million, I think. George Graham's last deal. I uh, met George, told him that Tartson wouldn't let him down, you know, told him about the good side and the bad side. I was very honest with George, known him a long time. David Dean rang me up. He said, uh, we're spending a lot of money here. Can you assure me that we won't get to... This is Arsenal talking to Luton. Unbelievable. We... Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to say? No, he's terrible. No. Don't give us no, the no, money no, at I all. I told David the truth. I said, David, take him. Don't worry. You'll make money on him. And they took him and he, d he did quite well, John. But um, I remember the chairman, David Kohler, coming in to see me one day and he said, look, we've got to sell Hearts and we've got this very good offer for him. And me and Colin Murphy looked at him and said, we're not selling him, which is talking to our chairman. Mm -hmm. We're not selling him. He said, if you don't sell him, I'll sell him. Ooh. So therefore, it, it was difficult. And, um, but anyway, that's the way it was. David, David was a good chairman. Uh, I think I'm um, uh, right in saying that one of the problems you were fighting relegation essentially in, in 93 and 94 with that Luton side um, is that you I mean I said it earlier in the, in the, in the programme in fact I made a mistake it was this team that didn't win a single game away from home I mean, how do you get into a run like that David how did you get out of a run like that I think that was the season when 11 times we were in front away from home I had no pace up front Danny I'd made a mistake I bought players back who I knew but their legs had gone Harford and Steen their legs had gone. They'd right. been great players. Both played for England. Yeah, of course. Um, but their legs had gone. So what happened was we took the lead. But as for our release ball, we needed pace on the counter-attack. And we didn't have it. We couldn't get behind the other team. And uh, slowly they overtook us. And I had an ageing side. It was an ageing side with youngsters who consequently, subsequently, did ever so well in the game. But they needed time. So the balance of the side uh, wasn't quite right. And, uh, you know, at the end of that season, I think it was the season when we got to the semi-final, we had a knock on the door. I had a knock at Sheffield Wednesday. Uh, 
the Secretary Graham McCrell had gone to Shefford Wednesday when Mr McGee was chairman and it was Sir David Richards, the great Sir David Richards, who... Now runs things, yeah. Now <laughs> runs things, who came up to see me and uh, said, we'd like you, laddie, to be our new manager. And uh, there you go. Well, come on to Sheffield Wednesday one second. I, I must, because uh, Luton fans won't forgive me, including the many of them who work here at Talk Sport, won't forgive me if I don't get your views on what's happened to the club subsequently. Because in, in, in some ways, they are an absolute example to everybody else of how not to go about it. Well, I've said previously, they did sell the Crown Jewels. That was yes. the start of it, selling the stadium. And since then, I don't know what goes on behind four walls. But when our people ask me about the 20 points deduction, I say this. Many people were defrauded of their money. Three times they had in, went into administration in an eight-year period. That means they weren't budgeting properly. They weren't looking after the ins and the outs, expenditure and income correctly. They could not have been. They had several different managers, very controversially. Mike Newell complained about agents, if you remember. Yeah. Um, I think Kevin Blackwell, Joe Kinnear. Joe, can, Joe spent a lot of money at Luton, to my knowledge, uh, and was very, very highly paid during that period and did get a promotion. Also got an honorary degree at the university for about one year's work, incidentally, which I've had since. Yeah. Uh, retrospective award. Uh, but um, uh, they've just... They've, if you don't make good appointments and you have to keep changing... And if you haven't got expertise behind the scenes who understand business as well as football, or shall I say the other way round, understand football as well as business, then in the end you're destined to fail. And it's so sad that they, that in that 30-point deduction, the other 10 points were for misdemeanors with agents. So that's how the 30 points came about. And they're now out of the league, and I find it amazing. For sure, they'll come back. When were you last at Kenilworth Road? I went there for the uh, Millwall game, the cup tie. Okay. And I also saw the Wolves game. I saw the two cup ties this season. And um, against Millwall, they played quite well. And I did believe they were an on-league team. They'd already, of course, knocked out Norwich City. And they, when I looked at the team, I can't believe that Luton are not... I still associate them with being a league team. So to me, it was like a league team playing Millwall, not like a non-league team playing Millwall. But the football was 100 miles away from what we were yeah, producing years ago. How did you get on at Sheffield Wednesday? Sheffield Wednesday wasn't easy. I had a lot of fading B stars, great players who'd been, but they'd lost their legs. That might sound funny to some people. They'd lost their legs. Waddle, wonderful player, not as quick as he was. Um, John Sheridan, I called him a Central League international, fantastic passer of a ball, couldn't run quickly anymore, couldn't cover the ground. Uh, Mark Bright, David Hurst, riddled with injuries. These were players that the club had allowed to stay too long. They should have been moved on, some of these players. Des Walker was still quick, the centre-back. Kevin Pressman, Woods, the goalkeeper. But it, I have to say, that was a difficult club to manage. I found it difficult. And, of course, to put bums on seats, I signed the uh, ebullient Di Canio to go with Carboni. And we had a bit of attractiveness up the front. Um, do you know, I started uh, one season. I think we won the first four games. I was the manager of the month. We were top of the league. Um, but I think in the, the final game of that season, we played Liverpool at home, drew 1-1. Got a bad decision from David Ellery. Goalkeeper sent off for handling outside the box. It wasn't outside the box, I can assure you, Danny. I can see it here. Red Dapp scored from the free kick for Liverpool. 1-1. Roy Evans got the sack because they didn't get into the Champions League. And I also started the following season badly and also got the sack. But I have to say, 
Sheffield was difficult. I must ask you about something. Uh, you, you did sign two brilliant young Serbian players. Yes, um, absolutely. Uh, Dejan Stefanovic and yep. Darko Kovacevic. Yep. Both, went, both went on to play at the highest level. Absolutely. Great clubs. Danny, I, you know I, the history. You I, know the history. I That's don't right. know what happened to them at Sheffield Wednesday. Well, Somebody once told me they couldn't speak English and that they lived entirely on McDonald's because that's what they could order. Well, I don't know who told you that, but it's very true. Ah, I've been waiting 20 years. Because I went round to their flat and I saw all these boxes of uh, takeaway foods round their house. They were too young to come to the country. In Yugoslavia, the previous state of Yugoslavia, of course, you couldn't get out previously until you were 28 years of age. You had to stay with your clubs. All of a sudden, that rule was changed. Mick Mills, my chief scout, went over and he came back and he said, Stefanovic is another Kevin Beatty. That was enough for me. Um, Kavakovic, good in the air, watch obviously tapes of him, but I trusted Mick Mills and I wanted to show faith in my staff. We bought those two players, and we paid £4 million yeah, for the two they players. Cheap, yeah. They weren't cheap, £4 million. Kavakovic, the centre forward, who was a bit lazy um, and a slightly arrogant in his own way for a boy of 18, 19 years of age, but he was well built. Uh, he went on to have a wonderful yeah. career. He made Italy, millions. He played all around yeah. the world. He played yeah. in Italy. He played in Greece. He played in Italy again. He, he was a, f- f- a centre forward. He's playing in but Champions. You went round to their house to find the KFC wrappers everywhere because they, they, so. they didn't know how to go to the supermarket. No, I'm afraid we didn't look after them well enough. That was also a problem, Danny. We gained foreign players. Sometimes I suffered, I think, with a player at uh, Tottenham. I'm just trying to think. It wasn't. Oh, Rebroff at Tottenham. Yeah. I believe now, looking back, that we didn't look after him well enough, or else Rebroff would have done better for Tottenham. I think it was a big cultural change. He went home to his wife, t- terrific, every lunchtime, didn't eat with the other players, wanted to get home, never felt really comfortable. You need to do more to integrate these boys, we don't you? We did not do enough to integrate them. I think in the last few years, clubs have learnt, and they, they do more to look after them in the first few months. Um, but that happened with the two boys from Yugoslavia. David, as we, we, you were talking about how you uh, didn't uh, eventually uh, work out at Sheffield Wednesday particularly well, but during that time, um, you signed Paolo Di Canio, and of course he's, he, he turns out quite apart from the, the he is one of the most amazing people. And the furore about his recent appointment at Sunderland. I mean, uh, what what did you make of Paolo? You, you know him. You know him. Let me tell you, I signed him Celtic. I'll tell you two stories, Danny, briefly. I went up to Celtic to to watch him one game. I got in a taxi to go to the Albany Hotel because I was early. Flew up. Taxi driver said, "What are you doing here?" He said, uh, "We're a waste of time watching him. We've, had, we've only got one player, Paolo Di Canio." <laughs> So I said, OK, I had my coffee, got another taxi, Albany to the ground, another taxi, another Scottish rabid football supporter, Celtic supporter. Um, I don't know what you're doing here today. He's not playing, you know. I said, who's that? De Canio, only player we've got. I said, oh, dear. Now I know. He's not even going to play today, if the taxi driver's correct. Watch they usually the, are. Watch, they usually are. Watch the game. Paolo doesn't play. Ten minutes before the end, I get the taxi back to the airport. Taxi driver. Well, you'd be disappointed today. We've only got one. Another taxi driver, different taxi. So I thought three taxi drivers can't be wrong. I signed him. (laughs) But the funny thing about it was, Danny, apart from listening to the taxi drivers, I'd seen tapes of him, I'd seen him play. Um, We were in Holland training, and I decided to go for Di Canio. I'm going to swap him with Reggie Blinker, my Mm. £250,000 outside left from uh, Holland, who'd done all right for me. Celtic wanted him. Jock Brown, we had discussions, Craig Brown's brother, and we were in um, a training camp and I sat with Sir David Richards, in, Sir David as he is now, in the car, and we're going travelling to Sheeple Airport where we're taking Blinker and we're going to meet De Canio there and we're hoping to do a swap deal plus two and a half million pounds. So all of a sudden we get a phone call 
and uh, Richards to, to Sir David. We get a phone call. It's the a, it's the agent of De Canio. I think it was Louis Moji. I'm not sure if it was Moji or De Bianchi. I can't remember. And he said, um, "We've got a problem. Paolo feels he's he's not too well anyway. He's, he's not coming today." But so Richard says, "But how are we, we going to do the deal? That, 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 that's ridiculous." He says, "He says I'm anyway." He's very upset. So he says to me, "He says, Dave, if the Canio don't turn up at airport today, he says I'm telling you now, we ain't got the decency and respect. We ain't going to sign him." I said, "I think you're quite right, Chairman." I can assure you that two hours later, we signed the candidate. <laughs> and he didn't turn up. And the power of attorney, the agent, we signed a contract without meeting the candidate, without discussing it. We did everything there and then and did the deal. And that was Paolo. I mean, he didn't, he didn't respect us enough to come to the, the meeting. But um, we signed him and he did put a few bums on seats. He was an erratic player, tremendously good at times, a great trainer. The day I left, last story, Paolo, Day I left, uh, David Richard sees me. I'm about to leave the ground with my wife. I take my wife up there. I knew what was happening. And uh, Paolo drives up in his car. What is happening? What is happening? You are leaving us. This is wrong. You are the greatest manager you have ever had. I like you. you. I will speak to the chairman. I will make sure that you stay at this club. You are not going to leave this club. I will make sure. I said, Paolo, it's called sack. When you get sack, you finish. You go. <laughs> He says, no, 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 I must, I must. Uh, I said, OK, Paolo, thanks very much. I wish you well in your future career. I hope you do fantastically well and I I'm, I'm hope, you know, it's, hope it's good for the club. Three weeks later, Ron Atkinson's come to Sheffield Wednesday. Big headline in one of the tabloids by Paolo Di Canio. Now we have a proper manager. <laughs> do you think he'll be a proper manager? I hope so, for his sake, because I, I don't know if deep down he's a bad man. He might have silly political beliefs, perhaps, and bad political beliefs, for sure. But um, he did well at Swindon. He doesn't deserve the opportunity, but he should take advantage of it because he hasn't managed in enough games, whereas managers lower down have done their miles and worked harder for longer and probably deserve the chance. He's gone in. It's a... How can I put it? It's a dramatic move by the club. It's a great gamble by the club. But if I'm quite sure in my heart of hearts that Martin O'Neill, as at this moment, is probably a better manager than Paolo Di Canio. Sure. It's a most extraordinary gamble, and we'll see how it works out. Um, as you say, you, in November of 97, you, you were sacked by Sheffield Wednesday. Um, and that might have been the end of you, David, but um, you, you're still very much involved in football. You've had several years at Tottenham Hotspur as director yep. of football, including managing the team about three times, yes, I recall. Yeah, well, I got a call very quickly. <clears throat> I had a problem with an agent who threatened me to do with the Petrescu transfer to Chelsea. And that's how I first spoke to the Sugars, because they told me, they advised me that an agent called Bacali was coming up to Sheffield and uh, they'd already been to see Popescu and the other one one that was at Tottenham, Dumitrescu, yep. and uh, he was a difficult agent. And he certainly was difficult with me at Sheffield Wednesday, and he more or less threatened that uh, Petrescu wouldn't try if we didn't allow him to move to Chelsea because it was nearer Harrods for his wife, nearer the airport to travel back to Romania, etc., etc., etc. Anyway, the deal was done. Glenn Hoddle and Mr Hutchinson, I think, had already sorted it out, which, understand, it goes on. And um, we lost uh, Petrescu. So, um, you know, that was the story of uh, the first meeting with the Sugars because they, they advised me, they're the agent. Sir Alan Sugar said, look, I've got a board of directors here. We know, excuse me, about football. 
we sit on the board, we're supposed to answer questions at the AGM, and we're all dummies. We want someone who's been through the mill. We'd like someone to help us, advise us. You're the apprentice, David. He says, I've I, I got a new role. He said, I've got a new role. He was a visionary. I've got a new role, director of football. He wrote a letter at the time to the LMA, so did David Sheepshanks, saying that how this role could be the start of something in English football. Bottom line, I went to Tottenham as director of football. I quite enjoyed it. I have to say, I worked very well with George Graham. I found Glenn difficult at times, only for communication problems. Mm -hmm. I respected him. Um, George was very good. Christian Gross was very unlucky right at the start because the players just didn't take to him and he never had an opportunity. Um, and of course, on, on a couple of occasions, uh, I, the first occasion, I think we played six, we something won three, draw two, we lost one. I think it was Middlesbrough in a League Cup tie um, when Tarika lost a ball in the far corner and they broke and scored a goal. Anyway, some something terrible. Had one terrible game there as a caretaker when we lost to Manchester City. Really dark moment. But I enjoyed it um, and um, I learnt a lot. Obviously, sitting around the boardroom table, you do learn a lot. Uh, Tales from the Boardroom. That would be an interesting book. Mm-hmm. That's, that's volume two, David. That's volume two. Yeah. Uh, but uh, no, t- Tottenham's dear to my heart and uh, I, I desperately want them to do well and I hope AVB will do well. It's interesting because the Christian Gross thing, you're absolutely right, the players just didn't take to him. Now, I don't know whether AVB is a good, bad or indifferent coach. I do know from inside the camp that the players have taken to him. Yes, they because, like him. because I think he's hardworking and he's a decent football man and I think he might have mellowed perhaps from his experience at Chelsea. Um, he's young enough to learn. Well, young enough to learn and certainly can't ignore his wonderful record at uh, Porto. Brilliant, should yeah. never, ever be ignored. Um, and he has the material at Tottenham and he has the backing at Tottenham and he has a wonderful new training ground and um, I hope that the club have got good times ahead. And then you've kind of gone full circle now because you started as a boy at Nottingham Forest and you've you've helped Nottingham Forest quite a lot in recent years. Well, I helped Nottingham Forest to a certain extent. The chairman, God rest his soul, was a wonderful man, Mr Doughty, and he put a lot of money into the club. He didn't uh, have the best of luck with managers, I suppose. They lost in three playoffs. Blackpool, Yeovil previous to that with Colin Calderwood, Blackpool and then Swansea both with Billy Davis. Now Billy Davis is going back and, and doing a, a, an incredible job at this moment in time. Um, but Mr Doughty was a terrific chairman and he, uh, like Mr Sugar, uh, realised that I had something to offer. I watched players, I gave my advice. They have the final decision. And now it's gone full circle because I'm doing a little bit of work for Tottenham, which I really enjoy. And um, obviously it can, gives me the opportunity to continue the occasional Radio 5 I don't know what you call it, a jig? A gig, yeah. A gig, a gig yeah. A jig is when you're dancing on it. That okay. doesn't work on the radio. Okay, David. maybe I'm still thinking of Main Road. Okay, well, listen, uh, well, of course, the most famous jig in England. So, well, perhaps Nobby Styles' jig after oh, of 1966. More important. The second, more important. second most important jig in yes, the history of, of English football. Yeah. Looking back on your long, long involvement in English football, what do you think are the things that made you most proud? Well, certainly uh, producing young players. Um, I've really enjoyed that seeing them play good football, seeing what I enjoyed, Danny, was uh, Horton briefly referred to it, Brian. I could lose a game. I I remember one game, particularly when Carboni and Di Canio did marvellously well together as a twosome. We didn't win the game. We drew the game. It was at Aston Villa. But I remember how much I enjoyed watching what they were doing. But in previous times, particularly at Luton, when I did a lot of shadow play, when we scored a goal or did something good on the field that we had practised in the week... I felt so good. And I'm, 
I don't think as a player I ever felt as good as when as I was a coach. Most players say there's no, you can't replicate playing. Of course, I enjoyed playing. But I really enjoyed looking after a team that played proper, good football. Some of the Tottenham football, some of the early days at Leicester, actually. So, some of the, the, certainly at Luton, no question. So it's my association with football and meeting so many wonderful people, nice people who love the game, like yourself, Danny, who it's so much part of their lives, so much part of the, the way it's been. It's been a selfish life, I think, because football has really been my, my passion and my hobby and, and I've been paid for it. I've been fortunate. But, um, and I've, ha I've been very, very fortunate. I've got a, a marvellous wife which was really wonderful, um, who has allowed me to do my thing. And, uh, and two children who've done very well. So um, I'm a lucky man. And what does the future hold, David? I don't really know, Danny, really. It's, um, I'd like to work with young players. I've th I have thought maybe of going abroad and helping. I've just been approached, actually, to, to go maybe help set, up, help set up something in one of the African nations, believe wow. it or not where they start talking about academies and developing football from the ground roots, the coaching. I've been a bit disappointed. I qualified as a coach very young. And then after you coach, you become a manager. You forget about, you don't forget, but you're taken away from some of the things that you were good at. That was on the field coaching. And you've got involved with meetings and PR and board meetings. And so you do less coaching and more managing. And I think that um, I certainly, when I was a young man, a really young man. I really enjoyed the coaching. You've been listening to an archive edition of Talk Sports My Sporting Life with Danny Kelly. Thanks for listening and make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast and Spotify for more top talk sport content. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.